Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we can be here this evening just to study your word, to be reminded of all that you have done for us, all that you have provided for us in Christ, and that Christ on the cross solves the greatest problem we'll ever face, and so all of the problems we face with the details of our lives are are nothing compared to what you solved at the cross, and therefore we know that you can solve these problems and that the major challenge in our lives is just our volition to put our focus, our attention upon you and your word, to trust you, and to walk in obedience to your word. And we pray that you would encourage us with your word this evening and that we can focus, concentrate, put aside the cares of the day and the day tomorrow and focus on your word and that God the Holy Spirit will make these things clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and there we go. And let's start at verse 8, verse 8. Last time we focused on the doctrine of the humanity of Jesus and went through the passages from Genesis 3, 15, all the way up into the New Testament, talking about and emphasizing the humanity part of Jesus. And that is what's emphasized in this section because as a, only as a man could he stand as our substitute. I want to point out a couple of verses as you, th- as we think about this. Go back to verse four. I don't have a slide on this, but if you look at verse four, the writer says, it is not possible, or some translations say it is impossible, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. That's the point. No one other than a human being could die as a substitute for the human race. So that emphasis is on the substitutionary death of Christ. But then another part of it has to do with the qualification that comes from Jesus' willingness to submit himself to the Father's will, the Father's plan. And to emphasize this, the writer quotes from Psalm 40 in verses 5, 6, and 7 of chapter 10. I mean, yeah, chapter 10. He quotes from Psalm 40, verse 6, and then he repeats himself, When he gets down to verse 8, he reiterates these same verses and states them again to make the point. And so I just want to start this evening by going back to verse 8, looking there, and then, uh, then moving, moving forward from there. What we'll see here is that four of the five offerings in Leviticus are mentioned in this Quote from Psalm 40. He says, previously uh, saying, in terms of the quote from Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering, two different terms, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. 
This is a quote from Psalm 40, verse 6, sacrifice and offering. And there it is thought that uh, because of the word that is used, this refers to the grain offering. And it says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Uh, My ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Now, that first word that's translated sacrifice isn't a technical word for a specific sacrifice. It's used for several of them. It's the Hebrew word ziba, which simply means a sacrifice. And the Greek word that's used in the passage is thusia, uh, which refers to a sacrifice or any kind of offering. But it was a word that was primarily used for the grain offering. Then you have the word mincha, which would refer to the meal offering, uh, followed up by, which in the Greek for it was the prospera, which is usually referred to the same thing. It tends to translate the mincha offering. Then the burnt offering, which was the offering for uh, complete dedication, commitment to God, where everything in the sacrifice went up to God. This is in Leviticus 1. Uh, this is the Ola offering, translated by the Greek word uh, holokotoma. This is where we get our word holocaust, something that is completely burned up or destroyed. And um, that's what the derivation of that. And then the last is the sin offering, which is the offering for sin. There's no mention of the uh, trespass offering. In here, these are not, uh, it's not meant to be an exhaustive list but it's a representative list, and the point that the writer is making, I'll leave that up, some of you are still trying to get it down. The point that the writer is making is simply to summarize the fact that all uh, all of the uh, Levitical offerings and sacrifices, all of what they pointed to were fulfilled at the cross, and there's no longer any need for any kind of Levitical sacrifice or offering to uh, to continue. So in Hebrews 10:9 it goes on to quote from uh, Hebrews 40. Then he said, "Behold, I have come to do your will, O God." This is the thinking that characterized the Messiah at the incarnation. He is completely subordinate to the will of God. And so through that, the writer then says he takes away the first, that is the first, the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, to replace it with the second. That is a major theme that has run through this section from chapter 8 where he talks about the new covenant and quoting from the Old, Old Testament that the Old Covenant's replaced with the New Covenant. Therefore, the, the very fact that he uses that terminology shows that the uh, First Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was a temporary covenant and that God had a future plan to resolve the sin problem completely with a permanent sacrifice. And that is what is accomplished when Jesus dies, the sacrificial death on the cross that uh, is the foundation for, for the new covenant. And then in verse 10, he gets sta- the writer states, and by that will, and that will here refers to the will of the Father. Remember verse 9, let me put it back up there. The Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will. The will that is being spoken of in context is the will of the Father, the plan of the Father. And so verse 10 says, It is by that will, that is the will of God the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is a finished and a completed work. Now, the one thing I want to draw your attention to here, and the key word that you should you should focus on in in verse ten, is the word uh, "we have been sanctified." It is the Greek word "hegiosmenoi," and it is a participial form. Built off, it's a um, 
paraphrastic participle, which means it starts with a finite verb from uh, a me to be with the participial form indicating a present reality. We are sanctified. It emphasizes a present reality, and it's not a, a, a... an ongoing action, but it is a, excuse me, it's a, it's an uh, aorist participle, which indicates that it is a past or completed action, and that we have been sanctified, and that is completed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, these two ideas of the, um, the plan of the Father, or, the, or excuse me, the covenant idea is going to be picked up later on in the chapter, and the this concept of the sanctification is going to be picked up later in the chapter. In verse 16, there is another quote from the Old Testament emphasizing the new covenant. And then in verse 14, there's a statement, for by one offering he has completed forever those who are sanctified. And when we get to those passages in a little while, we understand their significance because of what we see in verse uh, verse 10. So this sets the stage that we're not talking about ongoing sanctification. Remember, we have three phases of sanctification, just like we talk about three phases of salvation. Phase one, when we're justified or we are saved from the penalty of sin, and that takes place in a moment of time when we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Then we have experiential or progressive sanctification or spiritual growth. And this is when we're being saved from the power of sin as we advance in the spiritual life. And then phase three is when we are saved from the, uh, uh, saved from the presence of sin and we're glorified and we're face to face with the Father. So we have to look at the text and say, what kind of sanctification are we talking about here? And the completed idea indicates that this is talking about phase one, and that relates to, of course, to what Christ did on the cross, the payment of the sin penalty, and all of the offerings and sacrifices foreshadow different aspects and different facets to the work of Christ on the cross to solve that sin problem. And that brings us to the next paragraph, which is verse 11 down through 18, 11 down through 18. And the emphasis in this section is on the finality of what Christ did on the cross. And this is something we sometimes we lose because we're so comfortable with the idea. We're so familiar with it that Christ completed the work that we don't we don't really feel the impact of that as a fresh idea as these Jewish, formerly Jewish priests would have heard it because they're going into the temple. They had participated in the various courses of priests, the various uh, uh, groups of priests that would serve in the temple, and they had that experience of going into the temple, serving in the temple, uh, standing on their feet all day long, sacrificing one lamb after another, uh, smelling the blood, hearing the bleats of the lambs, all of this um, they would have uh, heard when, they, when the lambs died. They would have heard all of this and smelled every, all the smells and seen everything and done it day after day after day, and that is what the writer of Hebrews states in verse 11. He said, And every priest stands daily at his service. Now, the word translated stands is a perfect active indicative verb that indicates that it's completed action. It's talking about something that is no longer going on but was completed in the past. The word for that's translated ministering daily in the New King James is a word that uh, liturgeo, which has to do with serving, the serving, the service at the temple. And then the other word that we emphasize in this passage is the offering, prospereo, which is we've seen one form of that word or another, which is translated either as the, the offering as a noun, uh, the noun form or the verb form. 
So the point that is being made in verse 11 is in contrast to the point that is being made when we get to verse 12. Verse 11 is emphasizing that ongoing routine of the priest in the Old Testament. Every priest stood daily. They're on their feet all day long, sacrificing the animals, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. Now, the word here that is used for uh, taking away sin is the uh, form of ireo. It's peri-ireo here, which is a form of the word that is used. Here we go. A f- which is a form that is of the word that is used in Hebrews 10.4. So we have the same idea there, and we need to keep that in some sort of perspective. Back in verse 4, he wrote, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. These animals just can't do it because they're animals. And then in verse 11, he returns to that main idea, talking about the, the priest stand daily, offering these sacrifices again and again. It's a redundant, repetitive uh, sacrifice idea there, and which can never take away sin. It just goes on and on and on, one sacrifice after another, and it never really brings about the completion. It just they're just doing it year after year, day after day, and it never resolves the sin problem. And the contrast. Let me put. That's the slide I want. There we go. The contrast is between the ongoing action of the priest that never accomplishes anything and the completed work of Christ that accomplished everything, and that's in verse 12. So we look at verse 11, and we could paraphrase it that every priest stood, it's completed action, it's talking about the past, every priest stood daily when he was ministering, and uh, the time of the action here is that at the same time It occurred at the same time as the standing and when he was offering the sacrifices. And in contrast, you have Jesus, but he wants for sin, instead of the daily idea, but once for sin, having offered sacrifices, he sat down. And the way the construction is in the grammar, the offering precedes the the action of the main verb, which is to sit down. And so we see this comparison and contrast going on in this passage that the priest stood, but Jesus, when he finishes, sits. The priest does it continually. It's daily. It's repeatedly. Jesus did it once. The priest offers the same sacrifices Time after time, Jesus offered one sacrifice. When the priest offered it, it wasn't, it did not take away sin, but when Jesus' sacrifice was offered, it did take away sin. The priest's sacrifices were ineffectual, but Jesus' sacrifice was once for all and is completely effectual. Now, He moves on in his argument to verse 12. He says, but this man, now that's how the New King James has it. I don't know how some of the other versions may translate it. Literally in the Greek, it's but this one. It's not emphasizing his humanity here. It just says, but this one, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the Father. So the emphasis there is on the completion of this act, and it handles the sin problem forever at the cross, not when somebody is saved. The sin problem is resolved at the cross, not when they're saved. What happens when they're saved is the consequences of the sin problem for them personally are what are resolved. Remember, Three things have to be resolved for a person to get into heaven. First of all, the legal penalty has to be paid. The legal penalty was was spiritual death. But when Adam died spiritually, it meant that all of his descendants 
would be born spiritually dead, and they would be born unrighteous. Now, when the sin penalty is paid, that doesn't mean that their condition, the individual's condition of being spiritually dead and unrighteous is, is, is resolved, only that the legal penalty in relation to God's judicial demands are resolved. So God, in terms of his judicial demands that his righteousness be satisfied, looks at the cross and sees the perfect, spotless Lamb of God on the cross bearing the sins of the world, and his justice is satisfied because that legal penalty is paid. That resolves the, all the, those universal statements about Christ dying for all, redeemed all, uh, the world is propitiated. But the individual personal condition is not resolved because of that. And that means that something has to happen to change a person from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive and from being unrighteous to being righteous. And that is resolved at the point of belief, faith in Christ. So at the cross, the one man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, that's all that needs to be done is that completed it. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. This is a purely passive posture. He is not doing anything more. This is a major contrast, and this was a major emphasis during the Reformation time because the Roman Catholic theology celebrated a re-crucifixion that was ongoing whenever the Mass was observed. Their view of the Lord's table is what's called transubstantiation, and in transubstantiation, the, the bread and the wine would literally be transformed into the the, the body and the blood of Jesus. It's a mystical thing based on Aristotelian concepts of substance and accidents, and I'm not going to get into an explanation of that. But there, there's this constant re-crucifying of the Savior. There's no finishing of the work. And you see this whenever you go to a Roman Catholic church or you drive by a Roman Catholic church, you always see Jesus on the cross. You don't, don't go to a Roman Catholic church and ever see Jesus off the cross. He's constantly on the cross because he's being crucified again and again and again for sins. It's not really completed. And, and one of the results of that is you can't ever be sure that you're saved. You don't know that the work is finished. And the sin problem is once for all resolved. So this goes against the whole Roman theology, and in the Reformation period, this was a battle cry for the Reformers, for the Protestants, is that they weren't going to re-crucify Jesus again and again and again. And people understood that. Today, people don't understand uh, much theology at all. You're lucky if you get the gospel straight. But at the, during the time of the Reformation, because of the fact that it was a, when, especially in England, you might have one year as a death penalty to be a Roman Catholic. The next year might be a death penalty to be a Protestant. You better understand these things because your life would depend upon it. So they understood the significance from this, that there was one sacrifice for sin, and the fact that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father meant that the work was completed and the sin problem was completely resolved. With the result that he is waiting now, he's in a posture of waiting, verse 13, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Now, this is a verse that we've seen uh, several times quoted in and, and alluded to in Hebrews. It's from Psalm 110, verse 1, that my Lord said to the, the Lord, Sit until I make your enemies your a footstool. And the idea here is that it is the Father who is eventually going to bring history to a point where the enemies of Christ are going to be ready for that defeat. And that's when we connect Psalm 110 to Psalm 2, and you see that the world powers, we've gone over these verses, these chapters and verses so many times, the world powers, the nations are in an uproar against God, and the Lord scoffs at them in Psalm 2. 
and uh, he sends his son, the Messiah, the anointed one there in Psalm 2, to defeat these enemies. And this is what occurs at the, the Battle of Armageddon. And so Jesus is in this posture of waiting until the right time comes, and when that right time comes, that's the imagery that we see in Romans in uh, Revelation 4 with the Lamb coming before the throne, and the Father gives him the scroll, which is the title deed, and begins to enact the whole series of events that occur in the tribulation period when Christ's enemies are made his footstool. And the picture there is a footstool is under your feet. It's a picture of domination and a picture of defeat. So Jesus is, not, is in, a, in a position of waiting right now until the Father's plan for the church age comes to fruition. And, and this is contrasted to that ongoing activity of the priest in the Old Testament. And we come to verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And the offering, of course, is Christ on the cross. The perfected here is the Greek word uh, teleao, the verb indicating completion and it is the idea that by this one offering he has brought to completion forever those who are not being sanctified. That indicates a present ongoing action. That would be phase two. But this is a uh, tense that indicates com- the completedness, especially based back on verse 10, that by one offering he has completed forever those who are Sanctified those who are already saved, we might uh, paraphrase it that way. And so again, we have the familiar words here for offering, uh, uh, prosphora, and for being sanctified, the present active participle of hagiadzo. Here it has an article with it, so it's translated as if it is a noun. It really doesn't have that much of a verbal idea to it. It is just saying, it's like saying to believers, he has perfected forever believers. You could, you could paraphrase it that way because the, the Greek participle, when it functions as a noun, you can just translate it as if it's a noun when it has the, when it has the article with it. So he has completed those who are saved, those who are justified, and that is completed by his work on the cross. So that is, uh, complete and whole. Now this takes us, especially the verb teleao, takes us to the use of the uh, perfect passive indicative, third person singular of the verb in John 19.28 and John 19.30. This is, the scene is the cross. When Jesus has been hanging on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins that they've been imputed to him for three hours, he comes to the end of that time period, Approximately, now it's after 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and John writes, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that were now accomplished is the same verb, same tense, voice, mood, person, and number that you have in verse 30. It is finished. Jesus, because he knew that all things were finished, See, that's one of those places where I get a little irritated at translators because in English, when you go to study writing, they tell you that a good English writer will vary his vocabulary. He won't use the same word uh, more than once in a paragraph. So, and this has gone on. I've been reading a number of books lately on the characteristics of the, his, the translations and the history of the English Bible. And this has been part of... English translation theory since at least the time of the of the Reformation, and so you have passages like this. I, I don't, sometimes you have the same Greek word, and it'll vary in meaning as you go through the through the passage. And you like First Corinthians two has pneuma, which is the word translated spirit or wind or breath, and it means it has three or four different meanings in that passage. It, some 
It has a meaning of the human spirit in one verse, Holy Spirit in another verse, and you have that kind of variation. And so it's important to recognize that when you translate. But in a passage like this, the Holy Spirit is emphasizing the completedness and the finished aspect of what Christ did on the cross. And when you translate that word to uh, telestai with two different English words, accomplished in verse 28 and finished in verse 30, you lose what the Holy Spirit's doing there. He has twice stated in three verses, it is finished. Same word, emphasizing the completedness of Christ's work on the cross. So John says in verse 28, Jesus, because he knew all things were finished, were completed, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And then in John 19.30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It's finished in both statements indicated the completion. Now that word, to telestai, that Jesus uttered was also a word that was used in an economic context. Now, we've talked about the fact that at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. That is an economic idea, redemption. We also talk about the fact that our sins, were when they were imputed to him, that our that certificate of debt, Colossians 1, 13, and 14, is canceled, when it was nailed to the tree, and that was how that was forgiven. And forgiveness in that context, when you're talking about the cancellation of debt, is also an economic idea. And so when you take tetelestai and link it to the these theological concepts that are on the cross, you see that, the, that God is showing, using this whole economic idea, that what was accomplished on the cross completely paid the bill. And in the ancient world, when a bill was due and somebody paid it, that in, we would write paid in full or somebody's going to stamp paid in full on the bill, they would write to telestai at the bottom of the bill, and it meant paid in full. It's completed. It's done. Nothing more can be paid. And so this emphasizes that completed work of Christ on the cross. So verse 14, Hebrews 10:14 states, "For by one offering he has completed forever those who are being sanctified." Now verse 15, "But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, and so then we're going to have a quote coming from uh, Jeremiah, uh, chapter 33, which is the quote that deals with chapter Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34, dealing with the new covenant. Now, the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. When we look at that passage, just hold your place right here in uh, Hebrews 10, and we'll just turn back three or four pages to Hebrews chapter 8. For Hebrews chapter 8 has, a, has the complete quote from Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 33. In Hebrews 8, 8, we read, Because finding fault with them, that is, with the old covenant, the first covenant as it's identified in verse 7, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them. That is a reference to the first covenant, which was the Mosaic covenant. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Those days here is a reference to their time of worldwide dispersal the time that they're under the fifth cycle of discipline, the current church age period when they're scattered, plus the time of the tribulation. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. Now, that hasn't happened today. We're living in the church age, and we recognize that Jesus was the sacrifice that establishes the new covenant, 
but the new covenant hasn't been enacted yet because you, neither you nor I have the laws, have the word of God, have doctrine written in our mind and written on our hearts. That is what the text says. And I remember when I first went to a seminary and I listened to somebody teach and uh, something in Acts related to the New Covenant, and you would get different views from different professors. But I would hear some professors say, well, that there's an application of this to the church and that when we learn uh, the Bible, then God writes it on our heart. But that's not what this is saying. That is a really a distortion of the text. And this has been a problem for many people trying to understand how the New Covenant relates to the church. And as I pointed out when we went through a lengthy study of this, the New Covenant relates to the church by virtue of the fact that you and I as church-age believers are in Christ. Christ is the high... His priesthood is established by the New Covenant, and he is the high priest. We are in him, so our relationship to the New Covenant is by virtue of that relationship to him as the high priest of the new covenant. We are not part of the house of Israel or the house of Judah. And if you interpret that verse literally, God is saying, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their heart. Well, who's the there? The there in context is the house of Judah, the house of Israel, the remnant, the regenerate members of Israel. The, of Israel, those who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah during the tribulation period, those who survive and go into the millennial kingdom, at that point God is going to write that on their hearts and on their minds. And um, a couple of weeks ago we went through the stages of the Battle of Armageddon. This takes place at the end of that campaign following the judgment, the separation of the sheep from the goats, following the judgments that relate to the, um, the, the, the ten virgins, which picture the Jews, that five who aren't prepared, those are the Jews that aren't prepared for the Messiah, not ready to go into the kingdom, and the five that are. And so this relates to the, those that are ready to go into the kingdom. And when Jesus establishes the kingdom, it's at that point that the new covenant is enacted. This is not talking about regeneration. And there's a lot of people who you will hear who will say that, that, that this passage is talking about regeneration. And at the point of regeneration, that's when God writes his law upon your heart. But that is not at all what the context indicates. Verse 10 says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Once again, it's talking about Israel. There's no application here whatsoever to, to the church. And then we read in verse 11, None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Wow, well, isn't that going to be an interesting situation? It's talking about Jews. And it indicates that none is going to need to teach the law to another Jew. This is talking about the initial generation of regenerate Jews, the tribulation saints who survive the tribulation and go into the millennial kingdom. Their children will be born spiritually dead and in need of salvation. This is just speaking of that the initial generation that's still mortal, still in their, their mortal bodies. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. See, all of Israel will be saved at that point. And then he goes on to say, or the passage goes on to say in verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will re- Remember no more. Now that is a statement from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Or 33, 31 to, yeah, 31, 31 to 33. All that the writer of Hebrews does from all of those verses that he quotes, he actually, in Hebrews, it's broken down into, into five verses. And all that the writer of Hebrews is going to apply is the phrase a new covenant. Because he says, in verse 13, he says, because he says a new covenant, that makes the first covenant obsolete. 
that's an interesting way in which the Jews often applied the word. You go into Acts and you'll see the same kind of thing happen where three or four verses are quoted from the Old Testament, but then the only thing that is really applied is just one phrase or one verse. Okay, let's go back to our passage in Hebrews 10.16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. This is that same covenant, the future covenant that God is going to have with the surviving remnant of Israel when God says, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. We just saw that quote. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So he is applying here the significance, the impact of Christ's death for the new covenant and its application to the Jews that survived uh, the tribulation. And so he is saying he's going to draw an application from that. In the same way that God has said that when he applies the new covenant to them and will remember their sins no more, that shows, this is what he's saying, This is you have to pay attention here, you missed the point, that shows that what the writer is saying is, verse 18, where there's a remission or forgiveness of sin, if there's a complete forgiveness of their sin and no more of an offering, then the same thing would be true of us. Because if the point of forgiveness was what that offering on the cross, it applies in one way to that future generation of Judah and Israel that receives the new covenant when that's enacted, but it applies in the same way to us because once a final sacrifice is made, sins are forgiven. And this is this is a message that I'm not sure how it plays today. I think people still recognize at some level that they're that they're sinners, but in the morally relevant, you know, a relative environment in which we live now in our culture, I'm not sure how many people are struggling with a sense of guilt before God. They have so covered this over in resistance to God. They've covered this over by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness that it only seems to pop out when some Christian says something like this uh, young lady who was the Miss California and the Miss USA pageant, and she says almost apologetically that, well, I believe in the way I was raised, and this is what I always... I mean, she just qualified it so many ways that that marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. And yet the hostile reaction that this has received, and it's been on the news, and it's been you know, one thing after another related to what she said, just shows where the unbelieving world is today. They have worked so hard to try to suppress any sense of moral absolutes that now it's and, and they've managed to create environments where they can live their life without anybody ever telling them that something is wrong. But it's just beneath the surface. It's like there's this this pressure that's keeping this this down. And as soon as somebody just raises their head just a little bit and says, Well, you know, there really is a God, they just go berserk. And and, and see, this is the kind of reaction that we're going to see uh, among the earth dwellers in the tribulation period. This irrational hatred of anyone who represents God because what happens is whenever you raise your hand and say, well, wait a minute, maybe there's a God or maybe there's there's an absolute out there or maybe there's just an intelligent designer. I mean, how neutral a concept can you get that we're just going to believe in intelligent design? It, it, maybe it's Buddha, maybe it's God, maybe it's just a, an intelligent force out there. We're not going to say it's God. It is so convicting. It tweaks that suppression mechanism and it blows it away just enough to where you know all this anger just explodes from from people 
So I think that there's some way in when, when we're witnessing to people, this is uh, the, the whole doctrine of forgiveness is a doctrine to emphasize that whatever you've done, it was paid for by Christ on the cross. It is paid for there. The forgiveness is already there. The cancellation of that debt is already there. And it's not that you're rubbing somebody's nose in their sin, which, of course, is a technique that uh, fundamentalists have tried to use in the past in evangelism, that you need to make sure somebody really knows they're a sinner. People need to know they're spiritually dead. People need to know there's a penalty. But the emphasis needs to be on the forgiveness aspect, that their sins are forgiven, and there's no guilt before God, and there is a free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, he paid the penalty. But I think that as we do that, we're going to see more and more antagonism because we're living in the same kind of an era that is... In, in, well, we're living in the kind of an era that is very much characterized by the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, except we're living among neighbors and politicians and news people all around us who have hardened their heart. That's just another term for that suppression of truth in unrighteousness. And they have hardened their heart and hardened their heart. And then when we come along and say, make some statement, they just go berserk in anger against us. And so I think that we're going to see more and more resistance and hostility towards Christians and those who uh, are public in their message about Jesus Christ and redemption. Now, the writer is going to apply this in the next verse in a uh, very important way. And I want you to look at this. 19 through 25. I want to cover it in sort of a survey fashion tonight, and then we'll come back and look at some of the details next time. But this is the end of a section. I know some of you are probably going, wow, this was a really long section. This section started back in uh, chapter 6, uh, six fourth, uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7, uh, 1 through 10, 39 is this whole section. And the section down through 24 is the teaching section. And this has been a really long section, and we've been in this section for well over a year because we took so much time to go back to really understand all of those Old Testament allusions. We had to understand the tabernacle. We had to understand all of the sacrifices, the burnt offering and the uh, fellowship offerings and the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offerings. We had to understand all the components of the Day of Atonement and all of these things because we get, have to get our heads into the thinking and the experiential framework of these Jewish believers that uh, the apostle is writing to here in Hebrews. And when he writes this, he's gone through all of this detail, this, this again and again dealing with the covenant, dealing with the priesthood, dealing with the sacrificial contrast, and he comes to verse 19, and what does he say? Therefore. This is the conclusion. I find it somewhat interesting. We, we, live, we all know we live in this era where people go to church. They just want superficial, feel-good sermons, and they want something practical. Give me something to take home today. Give me five points of something I can do today. And people live at this level of superficiality. We've had a writer here in Hebrews go through all of this Old Testament detail, building this very tight logical case that draws together all the sacrifices, all the functions of the priesthood, the different kinds of priesthood, the different covenants. And finally, he's going to say, now this is what it means. And he covers the application in seven verses. But look how much time he had to take to get to an application. See, application comes out of what you think. Application isn't just go out and do these five things as if they don't stand on a bedrock of, of a system of thought. 
And he has to build that system of thought and the rationale in such a way that when he gets to the conclusion, it makes sense. And it and with these um, uh, Jewish believers, this should have been like almost like a slap in the face. This is profound. It is. It, it should have rocked them in their understanding of their whole relationship with God, because he's going to draw out three implications and applications from what he's, we've seen about the completedness of Christ's work in the cross, on the cross. So he says, therefore, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And we've seen that boldness that we can go into the presence of God because of the completed work of Christ on the cross having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. And this new and living way is the new covenant because of his death on the cross, that veil has been torn and there's direct access into the into the presence of God. So he says that we have a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. And here he makes an application that the veil is related to the flesh of Jesus, the body of Jesus, his humanity, because it's in his humanity that he dies on the cross. It's in his humanity that he pays the penalty for sin on the cross. And by paying that penalty, that which separated us from God is now permanently removed. The sin problem is solved. So he's inaugurated this new way. We now have a high priest over the house of God. That means three things. First of all, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a third person or first person command, first person plural. The idea is a command, let us, the writers including himself, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. See, he's using that Old Testament imagery of sprinkling the blood on the furniture in the tabernacle to, to sanctify it and to set it apart for the service of God. So he says, now we can draw near to God in the full assurance of faith because that sprinkling, that, that, that application of Christ's death to us is like the sprinkling of the blood and it has complete, completely cleansed and set apart, set us apart to service to God. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's, you know, and what you'll see when you read the commentaries on this is a discussion that this is talking about baptism. I do not think this is talking about baptism at all. This is this comes out of the imagery that we've seen in the Old Testament ritual. The sprinkling was when they sprinkled the blood. The high priest would take on the Day of Atonement, especially, would take the the blood from the from the uh, lamb and go in and sprinkle it in front of the um, Ark of the Covenant. At the at the initial consecration of the tabernacle, the priest took the blood and he went in and he sprinkled the blood on everything. And that indicated that it was now sanctified. It was now set apart for the service of God. The other thing that happened uh, at the inauguration of the high priest ministry is that he was washed from head to toe. And we've seen that same allusion in John chapter uh, John chapter uh, 13 when Jesus is talking to uh, Peter about washing his feet that this this idea of washing here is the participle, it's the perfect participle of luo, L-O-U-O, omega. It's the perfect participle there indicating the completed uh, action there. It's a once 
for all, a completed action to pass with results that go on, uh, having our bodies washed with pure water. It's that picture of the priest who is uh, washed from head to toe as a picture of his complete separation and sanctification when he is set apart to the service of God. Both of these images picture what happens at the instant of salvation. So because of that, because of the completed work of Christ, we can draw near to God with a true heart. The conscience has been cleansed by the work of Christ. Verse 23 is the second application, the second command, first person uh, command. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What he means by confession of our hope is our uh, belief in the future return of Christ, our future uh, destiny with Jesus Christ. Let's not give it up and go back into Judaism, which was what they were threatening to do. They, they were wavering. So he says, let's hold fast the confession, the admission, the acknowledgement of our hope. You, some of you have been around long enough to remember that uh, often doctrinal statements used to be referred to as confessions. Sometimes denominations would be referred to. And you'd be at what confession do you belong to? That would be an older form of English coming out of the Reformation. You would have the Reformed Church had a doctrinal statement, and it would be a confession. This is what they believed. The Anglican Church would have a confession, and so this term confession refers to a body of doctrine or belief system. So that's how the word is used here. Let us hold fast the confession, that is the doctrinal convictions of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's built on a promise of his coming, and he is faithful. And then in verse 24 we read, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. This is a mental term for thought and consideration of one another in the body of Christ. And this is an important aspect that members of the body of Christ don't just show up in Bible class and take notes and have blinders on and not look at anybody else and not talk to anybody else and not build uh, relationships and friendships with other people. Now, you can't build relationships and friendships with everybody, and you can't get to know everybody, but in any body of believers, you're going to get to know some, and some are going to become closer friends than others. And not everybody is going to know other people well enough to encourage them in their spiritual life because you don't know what other people are going through. But that will happen as we build friendships and build relationships with other believers. And as we get to know each other, then part of our responsibility is to encourage one another and to uh, stimulate one another, to motivate one another. And we know that when we have friends who are believers, when they're down, when they're feeling uh, discouraged, when they uh, feel like their, their life may be hopeless, they're going through extremely difficult times, then it is an opportunity for us to remind them of what the Word says and to encourage them and to uh, help strengthen them. And that's the idea here. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. This isn't just good works to do stuff. This, of course, is the application of doctrine in the believer's life. And you can't do this if you don't be, if you're not involved in a local church or a local assembly of believers. Now, that brings up another issue which I'll talk about some, some more next time because we live in a world today where there are many people who live stream, there are people who listen, who are living in communities where frankly they just can't find a solid local church to teach the word. Now, there are also some who live in communities where they can find a nursery to go to made up with a bunch of baby believers and a pastor that's just feeding a lot of pablum, but it's not bad. It's just baby food. But they don't want to go there because they're in some form of spiritual arrogance. And they say, well, you know, I, I, I need more than that. 
Yeah, but you know, God saved you for a purpose to minister to others in the body of Christ. We're members of one another, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There is an interdependence among members in the body of Christ. And I've been teaching this for years. I think we got uh, sidetracked back in back in the 70s with people saying, oh, I can go off and just listen to my tape recorder, and I'm just going to be fine. That is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is we're not a bunch of isolated islanders who just are off on our own little island doing our own little thing before God. We are an interdependent body of believers, and each believer is given a spiritual gift to use in the body of Christ. If you have the spiritual gift of administration, God didn't give it to you to use it at work. If you have the spiritual gift of helps, God didn't give it to you to use it with a bunch of unsaved people in your family. God gave you those gifts to use in the body of Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about. There needs to be this ministry within the body of Christ. And so we can't carry out this function of considering one another to stir up or motivate love and good works if we're staying at home and listening to live streaming over the computer. Now, on the other hand, I I recognize that we're living in a world where it's harder and harder to find something good. But you can look. I know one man who heard me teach on this a number of years ago now, and he ended up looking at about five or ten churches in his area, and he found a little country Baptist church, and the pastor was fairly good. He wasn't well-educated biblically, but he was solid as far as he went. And so this man and his family started going to the church. There were some things he didn't quite agree with. The pastor was a little bit lordship. But it wasn't long before the pastor recognized his abilities to teach the word, and he was put in charge of teaching the adult Sunday school class. And he taught him the gospel. He taught free grace gospel. And he, man, he did some great stuff. He was there for a year before he had to go, uh, had to move to another location. And so you never know. There are people listening to me now, and they're going to say, well, you know, I've tried five churches. Well, try five more. You never know where you might find some little church somewhere. But then you might be like one guy heard me teach on this. I think he felt a little guilty, and he lived in a smaller community up in up in Vermont somewhere, I believe. And he checked out every church in his town. And the best church, the best church didn't believe in a literal physical resurrection of Jesus and didn't believe in a substitutionary atonement. He said, you know, I've taken my children there a couple of times. Robbie, I'm not sure that that's really the thing to do. I said, no, it's not. (laughs) Don't do that. If you live in an area where you can't find something that is acceptable, don't go there. But don't, don't try to justify some form of isolationism just because uh, there's no church that's really teaching much beyond a, a pablum level. Maybe you can be involved in a church that you find somewhat acceptable and have a ministry there. And I know how difficult that is. And I've had friends of mine who have moved to areas, men who are mini- pastors and have been in the ministry and have moved to areas like Fort Worth, Texas, and spent years trying to find a decent church and have not found one. And and they're and they've but they've gone for a year here, a year there, a year someplace else. So it is a challenge. So, but the chapter ends that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. They were beginning already to just isolate themselves and fall away, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're to be encouraging one another, and trust me. The days are coming and coming soon, and we see the storm clouds on the horizon. And things, I do not think things are going to be uh, very good in the coming years. I think there's going to be an increasing hostility to Christians. There's going to be in, increasing uh, deci- decisions that are made at a political and at a legislative level. And if Christians do not band together and support each other, then it will be very difficult to survive without that support base of other believers. Now, other believers aren't going to make the spiritual decisions for you. Other believers are not going to, are not the key to your spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, but there is a role that we are to play in one another's lives. 
And that is critical to moving forward and to supporting one another in our, our spiritual life. So we'll come back next time, take a little more detailed look at these three commands. But these three commands all come out of an understanding of the finished work of Christ and the superiority of his priesthood today as opposed to the circumstances under the, under the old covenant. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these things, to be uh, stimulated by the fact that your word says that we are to be involved in one another's lives with other believers and encouraging them, strengthening them with, the, with your word and not just falling back to a, a position of isolationism as if somehow the, all that's necessary is for us to fill up a notebook with, with notes and go to Bible class as if that is sufficient. And pray that we'll come to a greater understanding of these things as we study it in more depth next time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.